So we today are starting a new series. The series um, is called The Journey of the Soul, and it addresses a number of questions which I think people are rather intrigued by. I'm, I'm personally intrigued by. We'll try to, try to address them all in stages and order. So the first piece of this is going to be, we're going to really try to address four questions over the course of the next five weeks. Yes, we're going to skip one for Hanukkah. Um, and the idea, number one, is going to be what is the soul? Number two is what are we doing? And number three is what happens afterwards? And... Oh, there we go. Um, <laughs> and uh, number four is is reincarnation um, as well. So these are our questions which fascinate people in general. And I'd like to thank Baruch and Esther Weinstein, who are sponsoring today this morning's share for the yard side of Mr. David Weiss, whose yard side is going to be the tenth yard side. Tonight is going to be tonight. Bezos Hashem, Lili Nishmas, Chaim Zev Ben Yoel, Nishmasai Aden. This uh, I'm learning a continued conversation should be one of, uh, of continued alias neshama for him. Let us start. This topic itself is something which has intrigued people throughout the ages. People have struggled to understand what is the soul and how can we experiment with it, how can we feel it, how can we sense it. People are transfixed with the paranormal, the supernatural. And so, in fact, even today, if you go, if you take a look at the most popular movies in the last few years, you will notice that one of the great themes in all the media which is selling today is the paranormal. Is that there's something above, there's something beyond, there's an entity beyond what we can touch and feel. People are intrigued by this, but it goes back a long, uh, quite, a, quite a while. In fact, there was a tremendous explosion in discovery around the era, era called the Romantic Era, which is roughly the 1790s all the way to the 1820s, 1830s. It was the, what was called the Romantic Era. And it was interesting because the group, the cohort of poets and literary thinkers at the time were actually one group of people, as opposed to other eras. Let's say the Victorian Era, which was much longer in terms of literary theory and ideas, was a much larger group and a lot and it covered a much far, further expanse. But the Romantic Era was actually one group of poets for the, on the whole, and they were actually living at a critical time in terms of expansion of ideas. So as an example, at that time, uh, the discovery of the vastness of the universe was being increased. So William Herschel became the Astronomer Royale of the British Empire, was discovering with his telescopes um, ideas um, and the expanse of ideas which were never before known of just how vast the universe was on the, on the macro level. There were, there were trips going into the darkest of Africa at this point in time, and uh, Mungo Parks was, was going down the into the heart of darkness, coming back with discoveries of people, of perspectives never yet be, uh, be, uh, been known. The, uh, Humphrey Davies was at this point in time being using the process of electrolysis to differentiate different molecules, starting to understand the beginnings of the periodic table of elements. There was a, a huge discovery, explosion of discovery in the sciences, and it was reflected in the literary theory at the time. One of the, the areas of, of, of discovery, one of the areas of, of adventure was the human body. And, uh, and there, was, there were a number of physicians who were doing more and more experimentations with the anatomy of the human being. And as this was going on, there became a, what was called a debate over the topic of what's called vitalism. Vi the vitalism debate actually revolved around trying to measure the soul. Is what gives the human being vitality? 
And so at this point in time, in the early 18-teens, one very famous doctor, whose name was Dr. S or Sir William Lawrence, who was uh, the first baronet um, um, of, he, there's actually a number of Laura, William Lawrence's till recently, actually. Um, and in, uh, he was a British surgeon, English surgeon, became the president of the Royal College of Surgeons. So a very respected physician. And at this point in time, every element of the human being, of the body was being analyzed. Um, people were being dissected. Um, bodies were being exhumed for dissection, whether legally or illegally so, as such. And there was, uh, and there was this, this uh, greater awareness of what made up the human being. And his observation from a very scientific standpoint was that if you could not find it, it was not. And so he says very famously in his book, which is called Lectures on Comparative Anatomy, Physiology, Physiology, and the Natural History of Man, he famously says, the philosophical doctrine of the soul and its separate existence has nothing to do with this physiological question, but rests on, on a series of proof altogether, di proof alt altogether different. These sublime dogmas could never have been brought um, um, to light by the labors of the anatomist and the physiologist. An immaterial and spiritual being could not have been discovered amid the blood and filth of the dissecting room. Which essentially means to say is what I see is what I get and I've not yet been able to find where you store that soul. Right? So don't tell me there is a soul. Maybe, yeah, maybe you can argue philosophically speaking, but technically speaking what I've been able to see, what I've been able to put onto the, onto the operating table, I've never seen anything of that source. Uh, sort, and I can say that unequivocally. He was obviously a, a very brilliant man. And there was a lot of debate on this. So on the other side was the Quarterly Review in 1819, which was a conservative, religiously conservative publication, came out um, very strongly against Sir William Lawrence. In fact, his predecessor, Albanathy, was, a, was a clearly a conservative. So there was a great debate between him and his, um, he, he essentially his attending, his, uh, his, uh, his oversight. And which was, became very public. The Quarterly Review say, quote, talks about him and says, we are at the Quarterly Review would ask that um, what it is that Mr. Lawrence, who in, is generally in the habit of smiling at the credulity of the world, modestly requires us all to believe that there are no more, no more fully developed than the other. Sorry, then there's no difference between man and an oyster other than that one possesses bodily organs more fully developed than the other. That all the eminent powers of reason, reflection, imagination, note, note the spelling, and, the memory, and memory, the powers which distinguish a Milton and Newton and Locke are merely the function of a few ounces of organized matter called the brain. Mr. Lawrence considers that man in the most important of characteristics of his nature is nothing more than orangutan or ape with more ample cerebral hemispheres. So the, the recorded review is saying is, how do you explain the sophistication of humankind if all you're saying is what you can find is an operating table and there's nothing else? So this debate was, was, was a very very intense discussion at the time, specifically in the discovery of the, the developed anatomy of a human being. Where is the soul? What is the soul? Where does it live? In fact, one of the, um, the patients of Sir William Lawrence was a man by the, uh, by the name of per, uh, Percy Bryant Shelley. Familiar? Yeah. Right? So he was one of the rom um, romantic poets. In fact, he was the, perhaps the leader of this cohort, or perhaps one would even call it a commune. Um, and, uh, and he was very much in the school that there was no soul. And, and his poetry reflects that. Now, he himself committed suicide uh, at, at a certain point and disappeared out to sea on his boat and uh, was washed ashore and re-identified later on. But he was married to a person by the name of Mary Shelley. In 1817, she wrote a book called Frankenstein. And Frankenstein is not the monster. Frankenstein is the doctor. It's Sir Victor Frankenstein. And it is worthwhile noting 
that this book, in fact, was an exploration of the vitalism debate. Most people think, oh, she was writing science fiction and horror. No, no, no. She was exploring the question of, can you have a creature, a being, which was created on the operating table without a soul? That was the question that she was investigating. And in fact, one of the most notable differences between the book that she created and almost every single other expression of that book, even in her lifetime, because within 10 years it had already become a play, is what's the main difference between any portrayal of the Frankenstein story and what her book actually re re read? Is whether or not the, this being could speak. When you watch any uh, portrayal of Frankenstein, it's usually a monster of sorts, right? Grunts at the best. When you read her book, and I highly advise it, when I discovered this, when I was reading about this a number of years ago, I bought the book and I just read Frankenstein because it's worth, we just passed the bicentennial, right? So, um, so it's worthwhile reading the book and hearing the struggles of this creature, of this being, in his own consciousness to understand who it is. That's the real question of Frankenstein. This wasn't simply a horror. There was much more to it about this being trying to find its place in society. There's a story within a story within a story. It's a beautifully written book that Mary Shelley is trying to investigate. Can there be a being without a soul? That's the question. And in fact, in the, in, in the quotation, just say, as a quotation from Frankenstein, this is the, this is the a description of the self-reflection. There's much self-reflection of consciousness that this being has. And he says, when I call over... The frightful catalogue of my deeds, because it turns, it turns very dangerous. It, it becomes it, extremely dangerous in the rage of not acceptance, that no one's willing to accept it, and it needs love, it needs compassion. When I look at the, the catalogue of my deeds, I cannot believe that I am he whose thoughts were once filled with sublime and transcendent visions of beauty of the world. But it is even so. The fallen angel becomes a, mal a, a malignant devil, yet even that enemy of God. Um, and the man and his friends and associates in his desolation, I'm quite alone. He is dead who called me into being. And when I shall be no more, the very resemblance of us both will speedily vanish. I shall no longer see the sun or stars or feel the wind uh, play, play on my cheeks. This was said in the northern reaches of the, Isla, uh, the uh, Iceland where uh, the, 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 the being meet, finally meets Victor Frankenstein again. This is worthwhile reading the actual book itself. But this was an investigation of the subject because this was the, the debate on the table at the time. And the debate has not ceased. So in 1907, there was a New York Times article which came out about a, about a particular doctor by the name, who lived up in Massachusetts, whose name was um, Dr. Duncan McDougall. And that, that really was his name. And, uh, and he, he performed a number of experiments where he wanted to know is what is, in fact, the weight of the soul? Can you measure it? So now I don't know if these kind of things would be allowed today, but he took six terminally ill patients and he put them on an apparatus where he created a very sensitive scale that the apparatus that they, that they, that they were on and he, and, he, uh, and he accompanied them through the process of dying. And at the point of death, which of course is very hard to discover precisely, um, to at least then, um, was, uh, he, he was able to measure the difference in weight between the human being as alive and the human being as dead. And he tried to, uh, and he tried to control for various other questions about whether it's release of liquids or whether it's release of air, all the different, or the moisture which, which, uh, which, uh, which, is, uh, which evaporates at, uh, around the, the time of death. And, uh, and controlling for all of those, he came up with the conclusion that in fact, that there was a difference of 21 grams between a person who was alive and a person who was dead. 
Now, we're, we're, um, there's much questioning in the scientific community as to the ability to replicate the experimentation that he did. Of course, today, legally, it would be a nightmare to even think about that. But, uh, but the, um, he, he claims to have afterwards taken 15 dogs on the point of death and did the same thing and found no difference in weight. So his argument was famously, and this is a New York Times article, 1907, April, is that, is that the human soul weighs 21 grams. Just recently, I read an, uh, an article about a professor from Israel, from Bar-Ilan University, who was trying to explain that, in fact, consciousness itself is an expression of the human mind and trying to explain in physical terms consciousness. This question of the soul is something which is a burning question for humanity, trying to understand ourselves. And I think that it's, it's worthwhile appreciating that perhaps we're using the wrong school or methodology of thought to address the question. Because there's many ways that we, ha we have knowledge. One methodology of, of acquiring knowledge, which today is the predominant in the scientific Western world, is discovery, right? So I experiment, I create a null hypothesis, I, do an, I use a scientific method, and I'm able to garner information by experimentation. And that is very valid, and, we've and we have tremendous respect for that, and Chazal do too. However, there are other ways of attaining knowledge as well. And in Judaism, one of the predominant ways of attaining wisdom is not through experimentation, but tradition. Tradition means to say is that we are able to know what we know because there was a transmission of ideas which arrived intact today, which is agreed upon across the board. And that's not because I experimented, but it's because I was given that knowledge. And it's important that although the scientific community will perhaps poo-poo this idea, because if I can't prove it or replicate it, then what, what value is it of to, uh, to me? But a lot of Judaism rests upon this other, we'll call it silo, of information gathering or, or, or ideas. And we're going to look into that because, ironically, the tools of measurement are feeble when it comes to the physical tools of, uh, of, of measurement, when it comes to something which is clearly not physical. So with... Um, so William Lawrence, right, uh, with the greatest of due respect, you're using the wrong tools to measure the right substance, put it that way. So let's, let's, try, to, let's try to look into the realm of Judaism, what the Judaism tells us and what uh, tradition tells us as well. So we start at the very beginning, literally the beginning, Beratius, Genesis, where we're told in the first chapter of creation, about the creation of man, we hear a number of strange things when it comes to the creation of a human being. So we're told in, in Source 5, this is in the first paragraph of Beratius, we let, let us make man in, in, in our image, in our, in our uh, likeness, and, and uh, he, he will rule over the, all the other creatures in the world. And this, this being will be in charge of everything else that came before it. That uh, created the human being, uh, male and female. Um, so there, there's a lot of interesting questions to talk about when it comes to this, when it comes to the, the human being. But the, 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 first, the first basic question when we talk about the creation of human beings over here is, is the strange word that's used in describing it is na'aseh, which literally is translated as let us create. Right, so the question of Top of Time Memorial is who precisely was God speaking to here? <laughs> like who was on the committee? Right, so, so that's, that's the question that, that, uh, that arises. And Rashi famously tells us that Rashi says he was consul consulting with the Malachim. He was consulting with the angelic host. Um, there's actually other versions, versions of the Midrash that he was consulting with values, values itself. 
that means to say, Hakadosh Baruch Hu consulted with Rachamim, with Chesed, with Emes, with Shalom, and said, "Is the human being worthy of creation when it comes to uh, when it comes to these values? Is the human being going to uphold these values?" And there was a debate between the values, right? Emes, uh, Emes was and Shalom were not so not so not so. Good. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let, let me get, let me get, get this step by stage by stage. Okay, so so let's just let's just sort of take uh, things step by step. But it, it's worthwhile noting, first of all. Um, that uh, that Rashi, Rashi is making a point, and that is, is that he says that there is, comes a tremendous cost for this description of, of, of creation in such a way, because what's the cost? What's the misunderstanding possibility? So the, 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 more, more than that, in Christianity, today, uh, Christianity says that actually there's a, there's a, uh, there's a triad, right? There's, there's, there's three folks out there. So, they, so therefore they say, look, it's clearly, you know, God's clearly... Got multiple dimensions over here, and there's, there comes that risk, which the Torah knew about. But nonetheless, Rashi said that the value of this idea of humility and creation, um, so to speak, supersedes the risk of the misinterpretation. Just uh, before going further, this, this is not our topic for today, but it's worthwhile thinking about this idea that all creation thereafterwards is going to be with humility and the need of another person. Pro <laughs> procreation itself is an act which requires humility from the side of both partners to create. So it's worthwhile thinking about that. God made it such, such that we are, we are not a self-generating and we need each other and we need the humility to need each other in order to create. Just worthwhile thinking about the replication of that, uh, that process. But nonetheless, it says the Ramban that Hashem is not speaking to the angels. Hashem is not speaking to the Midos. You know what Hashem is speaking to? He's speaking to an entity which we've already met explicitly in the text. Take a look at source 6. This beautiful idea. And this really sets the framework for our discussion. Omar ba'odam na'aseh kolomar ani v'ha'aretz ha'nizkar ne'nizkeres. Who is God speaking to? The earth itself. Why is He speaking to the earth? Because if you look at the previous psukim when it talks about the creation of fauna, of the, the animal kingdom, where does it come from? It comes out of the earth. Now, to us, we say, oh, well, you know, the deers weren't you know, just jumping out of the earth. What it means on a more sophisticated level is that the molecular elements, is that the basic carbon structures of a carbon-based life form, which comes from the terra firma, the basics of the building blocks of the earth that we have, the human being has a component of that. But, Right, so the human being is that ultimately. Ultimately, the human being is a molecular structure. We know the shape. We know the chemical structure of the DNA, of the RNA, of the ribosomes. We know that. And where does that come from? That's all found in the environment around us. But God was saying is I'm going to take all of that. I'm going to take everything else that we already have that's already been expressed. And I'm going to partner with it, providing the spiritual partnership to the physical platform. That's what's going to happen to me. And this did not exist beforehand. So the partnership between the sublime and the terrestrial, the ethereal and the earthly, is what's occurring in the creation, which is very helpful. So therefore, William Lawrence can measure the one part of the human being, meaning the container, can measure the vehicle, but will not be able to measure God's partnership because the equipment is not sufficient to appreciate that. So let's, let's take this one step further. So now, um, that's, that's, that's the first stage of, of, of this experience. Now, so you say, okay, the other piece, which is a little bit troubling in this whole section over here, is that Hashem says that He's going to make the human being, and in fact, it's reiterated, in the next Pasuk. So the vision or the image of God. So you say to yourself, what does that mean? You know, do we look like God? And in fact, in, a Christ, in many Christian renditions, 
you know, there's this, this idea of this, you know, some of us are stuck with this image of this large, benevolent, grandfather-like figure with a white beard and glasses floating over the earth. Right? That's, that's not God. <laughs> God is not a uh, grandfather-like figure who's, uh, who's, uh, who's uh, observing, uh, observing things you know, from, from, from the side. And so, many, so much of our distortion has, has, has come from that. So what does it mean to be an image of God? God doesn't have an image because the moment you have an image, why, why God is, is an image antithetical to God? Why, why is that a problem? That would make it finite. Right. Any image has a, has a border. Has, a, has an outer limit. Anything which has an outer limit has a, it is, in a sense, is contained. And in fact, it can be subdivided, and you can now understand all the particles, but there's no, ent- God is not subdividable. <laughs> God has no limits. You say, no, no, so how can God be big? Well, it's like, well, as big as the universe. Well, well, well there's the galaxies are huge, yet God's bigger than that. The point is that God is bigger than anything we can imagine. God has no outer, e- outer edge. There's no image which can capture him. So what does it mean to say that a human being is the image of God. What is the image of God and how is the human being reflecting that? Because the human being very clearly is limited, has a border, has a, 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 and is subdividable. So how does that work precisely? The Torah is specifically identifying this element. So, so some of them, for him, try to avoid this, say, sidestep this, like Rashi. T- t- take a look at ra- the question that Rashi is actually answering when he, when he says the following statement. Rashi says, what's B'Tzalmenu mean? B'Tfus Shelanu. Can anybody translate that? What does that mean, literally, when Rashi is explaining this. Here actually is interpreting the word Tzalmenu. What, 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 what does that mean? What's Tafus Shelanu? Right, Tafus is a mint or a mold. What's Shelanu? Ours. So what's Rashi essentially saying? Right, so, so who's, whose image? Our image. God didn't create in his image. God created in our image. So well, what's our image exactly? Says Rav Yosef B'Choshor. This is on the sort of Pashtanim camp. Rabbi Yosef B'choshor says, well, at the end of the passage, we're going to hear some of the functions he needs to do. Right? So he's going to need to be in, in control of the, of, the, of the, so to speak, uh, you know, shepherding, stewarding creation. So if that's the case, there's certain physical needs for the creation of the human being. So Hashem is going to create the human being who's able, this being will have the ability to do its mission. And that requires limbs and vitality and muscles and, and body mass and all the things that are necessary for that. That's B'Tzalmenu. Meaning to say B'Tzalmenu is in our image. What we're getting confused with is we read it as Naseh. That's God speaking to whether it's the earth or the angels, right? Um, and we think that B'Tzalmenu refers to that. No, no, B'Tzalmenu refers to us, right? In what we need to fulfill our function. That's the way that Rashi does this. Rashi is sidestepping this question because the question is too large, right? How could you possibly talk about the Tzalem Elohim? If there is no Tzalem Elohim, that, uh, there, there, there is no image of God. There's no likeness of God. That's what, that's what the Mephoshab shall do. And you can understand what Rashi is answering. But there are many who say, no, no, no. There, this question should be taken very seriously. And we should try to understand what does it mean to be in the image of God because this relates to who the soul is, what we are. Yes, Jelly. Well, the next passage says, You're right. You're right. It becomes, it becomes harder to, to sustain, such a, uh, to sustain such, such a theory. You're right. But nonetheless, this is, this is, this is how the, some of the Mephoshim address this. So the truth is that a, a lot of Mephoshim try to explain this. So for instance, Orachim HaKadosh says, if you look in source 9, he says, Efshar shiyechavein lomar shiyeh boi tzad harachamim v'tzad adin na'afil bohem darachi adin v'darachi harachamim la'asher yikonu v'havein. He says, you know what, what it means to be in the image of God? It means with the values of God. And what are, what are two of the values of God that are intention? are mercy and judgment. And by, the way, and, and by the way, most of our lives is trying to put the pin in that spectrum, if you think about that. How many times are we 
too, too, too demanding. How much times are we too lax on ourselves, on those around us, on the people in our relationships, on our employees, on our employers? We, 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 we're, we're, the, our, we, we have to make decisions on a daily basis where our value system is according to, into account. Says Arachayim HaKadosh, what does it mean? B'Tselem Elohim, the image of God, it refers to the values of God. Now, by the way, in the Sphiros, just to be aware of it, the Sphiros appear in triangles, right? So it's the, the first two are Gvura and Chesed. Those are two values in tension. And then there's Tiferes, which is in the center. So the human being is made up of three sets of triangles, essentially, of values. And so the Orachim is identifying the first set of, of values in, in, that, are, that, are in, uh, that are in tension. So what does it mean? It's not referring to God's image, so to speak, but it's referring to God's idea system, which is in bronze ass. Michael, yeah. I was just going to say, there's the two different verses to Pusainu, is whether you're drafting off of God, and you're going to have the quality of Chesed and Din, or you're going to say man is going to be composed in a way that he can, it's in the physical structure of man, which was the first way you mentioned, the Rafat. Yes, so there's, there is an, is an element of both. The Dufus and the Tselem are correct, and ultimately the next passage only refers to the Tselem, interestingly enough. Nachman, yeah. It comes uh, Adama, and then Adam, and then Dam, and then you have Aleph, which is Hashem. So it seems to me that it, it seems to be just a trail of one going beautiful. to the other. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I never thought about it from that perspective. Right, so there seems to be moving upwards. There is an ele another element to it, and I want to come back to the name in just a second, because there, there's another element to it, but I've never thought about it from that perspective. That's almost like a pyramid of ideas. Um, um, I want, there is another element to the name, which is also fascinating, because we have to see a composite being. Why do you name it after one part of the being? Which is interesting to think about. Um, but uh, the, 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 that's what the Arachim says. He says it's a value system. The Mishra Chachma says that it's, uh, says it refers to our ability to choose, our consciousness to be able to make choices. So whereas an animal is programmed and has an algorithm to be able to, you know, to, to sleep, eat, hunt, and reproduce, a human being has the ability to say, I want to do that, but I'm not going to do it because it's not morally appropriate at this point in time. I'm not going to eat too much. I'm not going to I'm not engage in this relationship. This is not, there's, there's an ability to be able to choose, which is God-like in the sense that God chooses, whereas animals don't make too many choices. Even the choices that animals are making are essentially in, inbuilt um, in terms of their algorithm and their instinctual needs. So another element of values, which, which is talked about. But I'd like to drive a little deeper. This is a very deeply spiritual idea, um, which is very important to know. So we're going we're gonna, to we're spend a little bit of time looking into the thought of the Nefesh HaChaim, who was Rav Chaim Velazhna, who was a student of the Vilna Gaon. And he wrote a book which has four gates. The first of the gates, the Shar Aleph, refers to this topic in general, which is the topic of the soul, who is the human being. And it's fascinating, at a certain point in his work, he, say, he, he turns to the reader and says, that if a person which I really understand this, they would never ever feel humble as a human being or never feel that their capacity to change the world is limited. Because sometimes we, I think that today in today's society, you walk outside and you see the way people are dressing. Uh, and we're not talking about the minimalistic, we'll call it, um, perspective of dressing today, but more the, 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 the laissez-faire, almost careless way of dressing is, the, is what I'm referring to. People walk around out today uh, almost like in pajamas. Uh, they walk around as if there's, there's no sense of self. And if, if people were to really learn the Nefesh HaChaim and understand the magnitude of what it means to be a human being, we would treat ourselves a lot more respectfully and try, and try in terms of understanding who we, who we truly are. He actually says, he doesn't mention the pajamas, but he, he does mention the, the idea of, of self-value um, in understanding this. So the first shara gets progressively more and more complex, but a few pieces from it. He points out that, that if you notice it, what is the tselem, the, the image is of which name of God? 
Elohim. So it's very important. God has seven specific names that are used in the Torah. The name used at least in chapter one is Elohim. So he says, well, what does Elohim mean, literally? What, 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 is the, what does it mean when you refer to Elohim? Actually, there's a word Elohim, which refers not to God. And that refers to? Uh, judges or based in or a power or entity, right? So this is used in the Torah else as what's called Elohim Chol, when it refers to um, powers or judges that are not referring to the divine. But when it's appropriate to the, to the divine, Elohim, then it is known in Halacha, the Shulchan Aruch talks about this in Sif, Simon Hay and Shulchan Aruch, when you say, Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melachalam, what does it mean Elokeinu? What do you mean by that word? It refers to, in, in, in Nusach's um, Eidot Mizrach, this is actually printed on the top of every page, Baal Kochot Kulam, all of power in the world, pyramids up to God. God is the, the, in charge of all power, all power is vested in Him. Any other form of power, is derived from his power. We, um, idolatry is the mistake where you start serving a subsidiary, right? That's, uh, that, that's where it comes from. So when we talk about Elohim, it means to say uh, the, the, the master of all power. How far does this go? It says the Nefesh Achaim that God's creation differs from that of human creation in that, that let's say I have a carpenter, very famous example, the Tanya also talks about the same idea, contemporaries, um, the, that let's say I have a carpenter who fashions the most beautiful of tables and he puts out this, this, this beautiful table, sells it on market and the next day is hit by lightning, right? The carpenter's gone, right? He, he, is now, he, he, he is now evaporated. So what happens to the table? Does the table disappear? Of course not. That was yesterday's work, right? So future tables may not have the opportunity of coming to the world under his tutelage. Or no, no, he will no longer be able to bring future tables into the world. But the table that he created was here. When it comes to God, God's involvement with his creation, even after the completion of the creation, is still constant. Which means, as we say in, in the, 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 the Kriyashma every morning, in the Birkas Kriyashma, I say that, that uh, the words we use as HaKadosh Baruch Hu is, Oisei Maaseh Bereshis. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing creating. So what do you mean creating? Creation was. So the, uh, the way that Nefesh Achaim understands is that God is sustaining a certain spiritual energy which allows the universe to continue to remain in existence. Were God to, to pull the plug from that, then instantaneously there will be a collapse of that space. Yes. Right. Ex nihilo and, uh, and, uh, and continued creation. And his argument is that God's continual creation demands the energy flow all the time. That's what it means when we say Bala Kochas Kulam, when we talk about Hashem controlling all of energy. Then he says, and that's what it means, Betzelem Elokim. <laughs> so what does that mean precisely? Meaning, in a certain way, the human being has the same capacity of continued creation as the Creator. That's, that's what's being conveyed to us over here. So you say to yourself, what does that mean precisely? Well, I don't feel very much like I'm doing that, right? Uh, we, we're all trying to work out what dent we're living in, leaving the world behind us, right? But do we, do we really think of ourselves as that, 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 for, that informed, continued creator? It says the Nefesh Achaim, we're going to take a look at this, this little piece inside, um, because it is worthwhile looking at it. We're going to take a look at the bottom of page 5, um, um, where he makes the following observation, the last paragraph. He says, Hashem created the human being in this same likeness. By giving him control over un uncountable universes. Everything that a human being will do 
will have impact upon all the worlds that he is connected to. Kiba Ma'asov Adiburov, through his actions, his speech, Umach Shawasov, those are three modes of expression. You give extra spiritual energy in those upper worlds. As he quotes the gives us that ability. And he goes on to say, What is a human being called a builder? Because a human being is building the world through the actions. Just understand this in the, as he goes on to explain it, but the way that I, I understand it, sort of, if you want to think about an image, is that this world in general, the energy flow is down. Now, down is a bad orientation because we think of heavens like spiritual up and physical down. It's helpful orientation. It doesn't mean that, especially as we've discovered what's in the heavens today. That's not exactly what's going on. We'll call it inwards to outwards, but that's all hard for us to understand. But as we move from the spiritual realm to the physical realm, there's a flow of energy downwards, essentially to the physical realm. We're the bottom container of the energy of that is being essentially moving downwards from the spiritual realm, which gives energy to the world that we're in. All energy moves downwards except for one, meaning to say, when you have a rock, when you have an animal, when you have a plant, that's the receptor of a particular energy flow, a divine energy flow which is sustaining it, like that table in a certain sense. And the human being is also a receptor. The human being is the only creation which which is actions are actually wired such that it sends energy back up, which means to say that the human being has the ability through an action, through a, a, a word, through a thought, to be able to actually change the way the circuitry is working. Upstairs, it goes back up, and then it reconfigures down, which means that to say that our actions have a celestial impact, which comes back down in the umbrella surroundings, generally speaking, that, that we are in as well. And that's why, why says the Nefesh HaChaim, of Velazhna, that the human being was created at the end of creation because wired into him, wired into her, into the creation, is the rest of creation. Every other element of creation is, so to speak, connected. So like so you, you move a finger and it's sort of setting out circuitry in terms of the upper, the upper worlds. Just to realize the, the significance of Sefer Yetzirah, which refers to like, one of these Kabbalistic books, is all it is is mapping out the human form. Right, it's just understanding. When you read these ideas and read the Sri Sahama and you talk about you know the seven the seven the spheres and the seven spheres all matching mapping out onto each other. There's a book there's books that talk about this and they talk about the actions to be done with the right hand with a certain intentions on a day X. I mean we're talking about very high and lofty ideas, right? But the point is, is that we are wired to have that control, even though perhaps we ignore that, that possibility. So this is part of what Salaman Okim means is that we are replicating the continued creation because we are manipulating it through our actions. Uh, as well. Uh, with t- tongue-in-cheek, I remember there was a, a meme that was going around a little while back which said anybody who, who, who thinks that they cannot change the entire world should really eat more raw bat. <laughs> Anyways, the, the impact of one human being on, on, uh, on, on, uh, on the world according to at least that, that conspiracy theory. But the, the point is, is that we do have an impact. We have the ability to be able to, to change the world around us. How so? Because we're wired as such. Even if perhaps we're not cognitively aware of the impact of our actions, at least spiritually speaking. So you say, okay, but that's the tselem. So you say, well, what's that called? What do we call that, that tselem? Do we, do we, like, how does that look like in the human being? What does God precisely inject into the human being, which reflects this? So we have to move to chapter 2, where it talks about that. And the, the, in, in Barashas, Barak Bays, we're told that um, in source 12, I'm not just the, in, the infusion now of another name of God, the name Yud Kevavke, Esa Adam, Afar Min Adam, I say, God fashions the human being from the dust of the earth, Hashem blew into, so to speak, literally blew into uh, that uh, uh, into the human being this nishmas chayim. So now we have the name 
for this entity which reflects this, we'll call it secondary creation, right? There's the terrestrial creation and the celestial creation. What's the celestial creation? We call that Nishmas Chayim. And there's another word in the same passage which also is used here, which is Nefesh Chaya. Right, notice that both of them have life. They're both related to being alive. That would mean to say that when a person is dead, those, you can't see those anymore, right? So the, that there's, a, there's Nishmas Chayim, there's Nefesh Chaya over here. In fact, if you look at um, uh, the rest of um, Tanakh, there are other names given to this as well. What's another very famous name given? Ruach. Ruach, right? The, 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 in Kohelas, the idea of the spirit. Again, all of them seem to be related to breath. In fact, Kabbalistically speaking, what's called the, the, the way the Zohar describes this is, is that, um, that a person who blows, which means say that God is blowing literally from part of him. You can imagine the breath of God is in the human being. Right now, that doesn't mean to say you can deflate the human being. In the, right? That's not, that's not, that's not that, that, that image doesn't hold. There's an element of godliness which is blowing into the, into the human being. So much so that the, this image is taken very critically seriously. So as an example, in the continuation of the Nefesh Achai, the image is set up as the glass blower. Right? So if you imagine the glass blower who's using a pipette or, a pie, or some sort of pipe, we actually went in Sfat to uh, glass blowing. It's very worthwhile doing. It's really quite an amazing process to watch. There are demonstrations of how this happens. It's really a remarkable experience. Um, but when you watch, it, when you watch the, the blower who's blowing through a pipe into, into the glass, you see the glass expanding. Right? So there's three pieces. There's the breath, so to speak. There's the pipe through which the breath is growing, and then there's the container which is absorbing the breath. Those are, as, as understood Kabbalistically, as what's called the nefesh, the receptacle, the ruach, the pipe, and the neshama, which is going through it. So just to understand in terms of the relationship with the human being to, to God in this is taken very seriously uh, in this, which leads to the, con the constellation of what's called naran, which is the acronym of nefesh, Ruach, Neshama moving upwards. Nefesh is this receptacle, the lowest aspect of the human being's soul. The Ruach connecting it to the Neshama, which is literally the breath of God, which is the, the, something celestial put into the human being. That was the Naaseh Adam. That's, that's the way it's generally understood in the most basic framework. There's multiple other tiers, but that's the most basic framework. The Malbim points out a very interesting, uh, the Malbim has a number of incredible essays, which are talked about over here. Um, and uh, on this uh, on, on this topic, and I'd like to just ad identify a few pieces that he that he talks about, which are worthwhile noting. He he notice he makes note that there are different words used to describe the creation process. Do you notice that we encountered two of them already in the psukim that we looked at? <coughs> One is naase, which is asia fashioning. Another word is yitzira, right? By yitzira that's also formation. And there's another one is. And he created. So the, the Malbin points out that these are actually three stages in creation. Bria is the earliest of the stages, which is ex nihilo, something which didn't exist beforehand. Yitzira is taking that which exists and fashioning it into something new. And Asiya is essentially the completion of the formation of that object. Okay, so if you trace these through creation, you'll see a lot of interesting observations. Because in the human being, we hear all three of them. Do you notice that? So we hear all three of them by a human being, which means there might, must be different parts to the human being. So he traces an interesting thing back, and he says, when you go back to the to the animals, you also hear about two. Uh, you hear about Bria. God ex nihilo created a new life force, which is not aquatic, not a bacterial form of life, but a, li a really a, oh, sorry, actually bacterial is, is included in this is a life form which is actually um, able to move 
Uh, and that is the Taninim Agadolim. It was aquatic. <coughs> and the Malim points out that you don't see that by any terrestrial animal. There's no Vayivra by any terrestrial animal because once life force was given to that which was aquatic, then it was just fashioning which came to the next stage. That's very fascinating from an evolutionary standpoint, just to, just to, to, to be aware of what the Malbim is actually saying there. Now, he wasn't relating to evolution, but that's fascinating in terms of the original Bri'ah of what called animal life starting in the waters, moving to Yitzira and Asiya on the earth form. That's, that, that, that's the observation he makes. So therefore he says, when it comes to a human being, any form of Yitzira or Asiya is essentially referring to which part of the human being is the body, which was already essentially an advanced primate, right? Which is what many people will, will argue today. So Hashem takes that primate, takes it to the next level in a Yitzira or even Asiya fashion. But then the Bria part of it says the Maui must refer to something which doesn't exist, which is the soul, right? The Neshama doesn't exist beforehand. So yes, we can point to the fact that the human body seems to be, you know, opposing thumbs. Isn't that fantastic, right? Look at that. The monkeys also have it. Yes, you're, you're right. That's, that's good. That's, that's, the, that's the Asiya part of the human being. Good. You, 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 you noticed that. That was very good, scientists. Now we need to move on to the next part, which is there's a Bria. There's a part that you don't have beforehand. That refers to the Nase Adon, the partnership between the celestial and terrestrial. And that's the piece that you can't measure quite so easily, which is happening over here. You need to understand the convergence of those forces. Now, let's take it one step further. Um, it, it, it says the, the Malbim, you'll notice that there's this, the Nefesh piece over here is interesting because an animal also is called a Nefesh. The Nefesh, uh, the, the animal also has this element of Nefesh, which is the lower reaches of the soul. What does that look like in an animal? What does that look like? It is? Instinct, right? So human animal has been pre-programmed, has got a, vi a, a vi vitality to itself, without getting into the vitalism debate. Animal has vitality, it is alive, it will fight for its life at all costs. That is the expression of nefesh, which is the lowest expression of the soul. And by the way, human beings do that all the time, and some of us think of ourselves only as a nefesh, right, in, 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 the, in those terms. Um, that element of the, uh, um, of the nefesh, he says, is worthwhile com comparing and contrasting to the expression of it has in the human being. So when it comes to, he, he, the Malbim says that, you know, it's interesting. And when it comes to, 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 to this element of the human being, we're told that we can learn things from the, human, the animal kingdom. Gibor Ka'ari, you know, Tsanua Kachatul, there's all kinds of uh, attributes or characteristics we can learn from the animal kingdom. So the difference between a human being and, a, and an animal in this realm is that an animal will only have one hallmark characteristic to its species, essentially. Now, yes, there might be variations within that characteristic, but there's a certain gvura to a lion, which is held by all lions. There's a certain zrizut, which is held by the tzi, by, 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 by this, uh, this, uh, the, the gazelle, which, is, uh, which, uh, which, all, which all of them have. Whereas when it comes to a human being, there are different human beings and different human beings emphasize different characteristics at different points in their lives and they're able to choose one over the other. So the human being has a little more, we'll call a more composite or complex reality of nefesh. More than that, an animal will always express a characteristic when it relates to a very necessary function. So whether that's food gathering, whether that's evolutionary success uh, in terms of reproduction, there will be a certain hallmark characteristic for a need. But it's not going to overplay that need excessively when it comes to human beings. <laughs> human beings will sometimes use their characteristics excessively to the point of beyond the, n the natural need for survival. In fact, to sometimes the point of self-destruction. 
uh, human being will be able to do this. So the Ramah says that yes, there is an element of nefesh which the human being shares with the animal, but it's more complex. In fact, he says that's why if you notice the difference between even the description process of the creation of a human versus an animal, it says, the, the words it uses by an animal is, Vayitzer min ha'adama kol chayas ha'aretz. It's not in the soul sheet. Um, Hashem fashioned, again, this is not ex nihilo because that's already, that's already in the seas. He fashioned from the adama. Adama literally means what? Earth. But it actually, adama actually really means mud. It's like a clod of mud, right? The animal. Whereas when it comes to the human being, it says, Vayitzer min ha'adama, min ha'adama, Dust. What's the difference between dust, afar, and adama? The, the animal is attributed to the adama, mostly, and the human being is afar min adama. What's the difference between dust and, and dirt? Clouds, what? Yeah, so afar is a, a higher level, so to speak, it rests on the top. It's like the dust, you know, like when they're doing the leaf blowing, that's what sort of flies up, right? The, the afar. So the Bible says, metaphorically, the human being contains so many different pieces of what the animal kingdom had, whereas the animal kingdom is sort of one entity. This animal is one entity in, in terms of material being. It's, it's sort of like very collected, is, is one space. With a human being, it's lots of different pieces of the material, even itself on the material level. Moreover, moreover when it comes to the animal creation, the Malin points out that it's, it's Vayitzer min ha'adama, first there's earth and then there's nefesh chaya. When it comes to human being, it's It's the human being first and then it's the, the earth later. So a lot of, lot of discussion as to um, um, these, these particular details. The one piece which I think is profound that the Malbim does is he quotes a Gomorrah in Brachos, um, which is in source 14, which is a very helpful, um, very helpful for us to appreciate what's going on over here. Um, he says, this is in source 14, where he says, um, which is essentially, uh, I'm going to start in eight lines in, or seven lines in. The last of the line is Barchinavshi. So it says, Chazal, Barchinavshi, Amar David, throughout Tehillim, says, Barchinavshi, let my soul thank or bless God five times. And he says, because it relates to five elements of the soul. Ma Kodesh Baruch he has, he has, he has the, 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 what we're going to do. We're going to compare God to the world, and this, that same parallel would be the neshama or the nefesh to the body. So that's the parallel we're going to draw. As God is to the world, so to the, the soul is to the body. In which ways? So the Gemara says, So the neshama doesn't belong in a certain uh, you know, cortex of the brain. The, the neshama fills the body like God fills the world. Number two. Consciousness cannot be seen, but consciousness sees. In the same way that God sees, but cannot be seen. That's comparison number two. So calls pulas, and he got, there's actually another three which the Gemara goes on, goes on to, des, uh, to describe. So when thinking about this, when we think about the, the Tzalem Elohim, in a, in a much great, greater picture, in the same question we have as to what, who we are, is the same question as who God is. Because we're an extension of something of Him. Just we're the microcosm of the same expression of God in the world. God to the world, us to, to, the, to, to the body. The, 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 the Malbim goes on to further and quotes a number of Kabbalistic works, which we're not going to get into right now. The uh, Malbim is, is fascinating in this, in this respect uh, about the impact of, um, of, of how um, <coughs> actions of impact and effect us. But we go for, the, for the sake of the moment, we're going to uh, move a little further right now because this is an endless topic um, in itself. I want to come back to um, Nachman's point. So 
We've talked about this idea of Tzelem Elohim and somehow what this means to be in the image of God, which God, uh, the, the name of God is expressed by Lakachos Kulam, continued creation, which means that we have an element of our actions having a, an impact on continued creation. Well, the name of that is, seems to be three parts, is Nishmas Chayim, Nefesh, and elsewhere, Ruach, each of them being a different part of it, the Nefesh being something we share with the animals, but more complex, but the Ruach and the Neshama not being nearly as, uh, uh, not being um, in the overlap at all. But then the question is, is, so if that's the case, why is a person called, why is a human being called Adam? Right, then it, it's, it's it, by the way, it's interesting that the, the woman is later called Chava, which is Nefesh Chaya, which is the life force, which is much more cerebral, um, be it as it may. But why would the, the human being in first iteration be called Adam? If that really relates to which aspect of the human being? Adama, right? It seems to be the earthliness. So if, if we want to convey the message that the human being <coughs> has an element of the cerebral, of the intellect, then we should really say something else. We should talk about the difference, not the similarity to the rest of the, the creatures, because now you walk away saying, okay, that's a nice animated piece of dirt and, and um, carbon-based life form, which is very nice. <laughs> There's a whole bunch of them in the zoo too. Right, so why, why are we, uh, why, why is it different? I remember actually when, my, when we were, my son was two years old, we went to the, to, to the Chicago Zoo at the time, and we were like walking by the gorilla enclosure, and my two-year-old at the time, who's now by Mitzvah, said, uh, said, why is that man not wearing a yarmulke? <laughs> so, he is a rather hairy fellow. You know? <laughs> but the question is, is so, so, is so, why are we called an Adam? Why are we called uh, as sort of like a, like a material? Why, do, why don't we have uh, more than that? And the, uh, the answer is, is that Adam actually means two things. One is it relates to Adama, which is the tier below in the pyramid like you were describing. There's another idea of what Adam means. Adama means, actually. It's based on a passage in Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu describes to us in Source 15, I will ascend to this, the loftiness of those clouds. What does Adame Elyon mean? I will? I'll be compared. Okay, I, will, I, will, I will match the way it's translated over here. Um, in, in a certain sense, what, what element of the human being is, is Adame referring to? Imagery. The imagery, the imagination. I will be like a cloud, I'll fleet, I'm stuck in this cell, I'm stuck in this place, my life is difficult, and Adamele Elion, but I, I want to be higher. Which means that actually the name of the human being is Adama, which is the earthliness which pulls us down and tells us that we are simply like a primate trying to sustain ourselves and our families. But there's an element in us which also says Adamele Elion, I want to be higher, I want to be, I want to be something else. And that's coming back to the Rambans, Naase Adam, is that the two pieces are found in the actual name itself of the human being. Obviously, this is, this is pretty sophisticated uh, stuff, and so it's, 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 it's important just to realize where this is not. So as an example, um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a movie which came out, Disney movie, we talked about this a few years ago, called Soul, which uh, just came out. Um, and and, like, you know, and I, I, I love the fact that Disney like, superimposes American culture on every part of the world, like you know, <laughs> whether, whether it's the, you know, the bottom of the, the, the sea or whether it's uh, um, um, rats or wherever else you, know, you want to, you know, whatever other movie you're going you're gonna to talk about where you just superimpose American culture, but you can't do that to the soul. And, and the, the danger of doing that in such a way is, is that you, 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 it's, it's a beautiful drama and everything, right? But in the end of the day, you get misinformed. I remember somebody, to, somebody just this week asked me um, about, about family purity. And she said she was like, she was like shocked about this whole thing because she was listening to this comedian who used to be orthodox or observant and kind of went off. And he was like talking about these things. And she was like, is that really true? And I was like, actually not. But you, you, need to, you need to figure out a little, a little more. There's a lot more to it. But we've we got to be careful by not being educated 
by, by media, because the media will give us certain images of what soul looks like. And we will look at many movies trying to focus on the paranormal media, which is trying to explore this, and they don't have the information. Right, so they will leave a lingering image of these things, but this is not really what it is. Just to, just to, to, to take it to, to as we close today, because it looks like we're closing in our time, but just a few more pieces which are, are, are worthwhile considering, um, and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll stop here. Now, uh, and that is, is, um, is that in fact there are, the, the, another book which I highly recommend in this topic is the Derech Hashem of Moshe Chaim Sato, who in the first uh, chapter spends a lot of time on the notion of soul. We're going to spend a little more time with him next week. We talk about why I'm here. That's, that's, the, that's the next step. But in his first chapter, which is, by the way, is very accessible. It's written in, in a cyclopedic fashion. It's, very, um, very, it's broken to paragraphs, sub-paragraphs, and uh, it's got shoulder captions now, thanks to Rabbi Arya Kaplan and translated and footnoted by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Fascinating um, in, in general, where, where he talks about there's actually really five stages of uh, basic stages of soul. There's nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida. And we actually are only encompassing the lower le- uh, part of the soul. In a certain sense, the, the imagery that's used is like the, is that we have, um, the, the body is considered like a shoe. The body is like a shoe. Shoe imagery in Tanakh is very worthwhile noting because it's, the, it's seen as the, as, the, uh, as, as the body, which means, if you think about it, like how much time, how much time do we spend thinking about our shoes? Right, so like it's, it's sort of capturing the bottom part of the body. Now transpose that imagery to the soul. Right, what's the body doing? It's capturing the bottom layer of the soul, which is great. But for us to think that I know myself, right, <laughs> I'm this little being, I know I know my parameters is is a miscalculation because the soul's much larger than the body, and the the we're called the higher iterations of the soul, the higher connections of the soul actually are not bound by the body. What happens is 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 that there's actually times where that chain, that chain of being who we are, can actually change. So there's times, as an example, where on Shabbos, as a, this is the most famous example, where we talk about a neshama yaseirah, that doesn't mean to say there's a second soul, that means to say that that long chain of the divine being that I am has an additional rung in the ladder. There's another piece there, which I can sometimes, maybe, maybe sense, the Derech Hashem says it's, very, it's hard for a human being to even sense when there's a movement in or out of a piece of the soul, Another place where, we, where, this happen, where this is relevant is when a person goes to sleep, which means that the lower parts of the soul remain tethered to the human being, but the higher parts of the human being, the higher parts of the, of the soul, actually are allowed to transmigrate. They are able to, to, to go return back to the spiritual sphere, which accounts for some elements of dreams. Not most dreams today. Most dreams are just the Shabbos challenge, right? <laughs> so a lot of what we dream about is physiological. So what we did or didn't do during the day, the indigestion or the bodily pressures that we are experiencing internally. But there is an element of dreams, which if we are sensitive people and we see a reiteration of the same dream, could be something the neshama is experiencing. Now, we have to be careful about what we interpret that to mean. And there's, there's formulas for hatavas chalom in general, making good of a dream and the interpretation of a dream, which can be found in Sidurim. But there, there is an element of why is that happening is because when a person is, is asleep, then there, there's an element. That's why we say in the morning, And that's why we say, just as you return it to me this morning, I know that's what's going to happen after I die as well. So we, that's the microcosm of that experience of the transmigration, which happens on a daily basis, which, which occurs. The, the most profound, yes. Was every man created with soul, or only Jews created? In soul? Such a good question. So, uh, so this this actually is uh, is is discussed in the Mishnah in Perkei Avos, where um, Rabbi Akiva describes Chaviv Adam Shinivra Human beings were created with Elokim. 
It's even better if they know about that. Most people aren't, aren't, don't, don't, don't know about it today. Then it says, So the uniqueness of B'nai Yisrael are, are that we are considered children of God. That is an extra element. In that, in that mission and around that mission is an incredible amount of debate um, of, uh, on, on this particular question. But the most basic idea is, of course, every human being has, has a soul. What is additional about Israel is unique in terms of whether it's educational, whether it's mission, whether it's inherent. That's the, that's the discussion of the debate. It's really worthwhile reading, if you wanted to do more on this topic, is the Teferi Israel on that mission has an incredible discussion is, can a human being lose their right to that sentiment of Kim? Can a human being be so depraved, so, uh, so uh, violent, that they can lose their connection, in a certain sense, disconnect? That's a, that's a question which is, which is had um, on this topic. But yes, that, that's the, the basic idea. The, you will see statements which sometimes people throw at us that Judaism considers the rest of the world, the heathens, as, as, as subhuman, because you'll see comment, comments like, Adam ki oil, a human being will die in a tent. And that doesn't mean to say they don't have a element of Kim, although some would interpret it as such. Um, there's a number of explanations as to what that means. It's referring to Tumas oil, a particular added level of Kedusha that the, uh, that the Jewish soul has, which in its absence will therefore create a, a form of pervasive level of Tumah. But it's not to discredit the, the soul of other human beings, but it relates to mission as well. It is worthwhile noting, I just want to actually close because we have just uh, two, minutes, two minutes more. Um, there isn't a discussion as to um, inanimate objects also having an expression of that energy as well, even though it's not felt. So, the, um, so like that's why when we express Hakara Satov to to inanimate objects like stones or frogs or, or the rivers or whatever else that we see in Tanakh. It's not just because we're nice people. It's because actually that it's, the way it's described, Rav Bloch describes it in Pnei Das, is it's like a limb. A limb doesn't have its own consciousness, but it does feel, right? It's felt by, so the, the energy is expressed in the different parts of the world, even though it doesn't have its own consciousness. So there's an element of reflection on the spiritual entity that's in everything. Last piece, and we'll just close with this today, and we won't, we won't have time for much further, but is, is the image which we actually just looked at in yesterday's parasha, which I think it revolutionizes the way that we will ever see this again. When you talk about the image of the Sulam Mutzav Arzav Roshomagia Shomaima, so we have this, this abyss, this ladder, and there's the angels, and they're going up and they're, down, they're going down. What does that mean? So we say, oh, which angels are they? They Malachi Eretz Yisrael, Malachi Chutzar, the Malachim are going up and seeing the image of Yaakov on the throne, all the things that we've learned, right? It says in Nefesh is that in fact the sulam is in fact the soul. The sulam of Arza is the human soul. And the Malachim Oilim V'yardin Boy means to say, this is quoting the Raya Mehemnya, which is a deeply Kabbalistic work, is, is that when a human being performs particular actions, says certain words or, or expresses certain thoughts, that sends reverberations back up to the celestial world, which has impact on the world around us and comes back down to us as well. Which means an angel is a force of nature, a spiritual force of nature, which depends on the actions we take. Which means to say that the neshama is not, we're not simply a small little, you know, box. We're a little human being of sick, roughly five to six feet, you know, and, uh, and we w walk upon this planet. We have a much longer spiritual connection. The, the, we'll call it the, the, the circuitry goes up much higher. And when we do actions, that sends pulses all the way up and it affects the world around us. Coming back to the power of the human being as a continued creator. We are much bigger than we ever imagined. And if this, if this does feel a little bit beyond the scope of our logic, yes, that's, that's true because we are using a, uh, our brains and our logic and the parameters of our touch and feel to try to understand something which is much more beyond that concept. I'll just close with a, a story I just, I just saw recently um, about a person by the name of Do Dr. or Rabbi Do um, Elimelech Goldberg who has an organization called Kids Kicking Cancer. He, he works, he teaches martial arts to kids uh, 
in uh, who lives in Detroit, yeah, I mean, who, 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 uh, who are going through the uh, most terrible of diseases, and he was describing a conversation he had with a little girl called Tali at, at, at Camp Simcha, and she'd, she, she, they just found out that the treatment for her rare form of, of eye cancer had, had, um, had returned, and the treatment wasn't effective. And she, and she was in a very bad place, she was speaking to him, and, um, and at a certain point, like in a beautiful childlike way, she said, she said to him, she said, can my neshama, can my soul contract cancer? And, and he said, no, Tali, your soul will never get cancer. And that, that for her was a turning point. She, she got up and she went and carried on playing with the kids. I was able to do that. And, and from then onwards, he started asking kids, what is your most powerful part of your body? What's the most powerful part of you? And children talk about their, their foot and their hand and their shoulder. And he said, the most powerful part of you is your neshama because it's beyond the reaches of everything we measure, all the pain we feel, everything that's in, within this world. It's, it's important for us to expand our consciousness to realize how much more of a person we are than meets the eye upon the anatomy table which we're, which we're being taught. That's one part of it, and that's a fantastic discovery. We should discover more. We should understand the structure of RNA so we can create CRISPR, so we can, so we can um, uh, um, kill viruses like the coronavirus, which is how um, the, the, a lot of this came into being today was genetic engineering. But in the end of the day, that's only one small part of the human being. So next week, Bezra Hashem, we'll move forward into, um, into other zones. I thank everybody for taking the time to come, and I look forward to the current, continuing learning.